Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the Law, podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeff Bristol, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Stephen Yazel, the David G. Price, and Dallas P. Price, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Law at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Lawsuits in a Market Economy is an in-depth look at the development and current situation of civil litigation. It begins with the question of why civil lawsuits have become such a political question and uses that to explore our world of settlements, arbitration, trials, and insurance adjusting. It gives an expert, informed, and even-handed look at what can be a contentious topic and is accessible to the layperson and edifying even to the professional. It portrays our environment of civil litigation as an evolving one, where people solve real problems, often for society's benefit. Today, we'll be asking Professor Yezel to describe the current state of civil litigation in the U.S., what it is, how it has changed over the past century, and what its players have done to shape it. We'll briefly discuss recent Supreme Court decisions about arbitration, how Hulk Hogan and Gawker are not what civil litigation is all about, and why our current system might be, despite the rhetoric, pretty good for what it is. Uh, Thank you, Professor Yezel, for agreeing to appear with us on New Books Network, the Law Channel. Um, We may as well just jump into our interview right now. Uh, So I was wondering uh, if you could, for the benefit of our audience, go into a little bit about what is civil litigation? And could you please also tell us, like, what are trial lawyers? Okay, sure. Civil litigation, simply put, is people suing each other over anything from an unpaid credit card bill to toxic waste to the president's famous travel ban. It's the stuff courts and lawyers do that isn't criminal law. Very roughly speaking, if no one risks going to jail at the end of the day, it's civil litigation. Great. And so we one of the big themes in your book is this discussion about trial lawyers and kind of how how both of they have a negative reputation and how in some ways it's kind of unusual and ironic even to have the term. So what are trial lawyers and why might it seem weird to call a tri- a lawyer a trial lawyer? Well, 150 years ago, it would have not only been weird but incomprehensible. It would be like would have been like calling someone today a doctor physician. But over time, uh, that has come to mean lawyers who take civil cases to actual trials. Um, that would have included most lawyers 100 years ago, but today it's become a subspecialty more particularly and more pejoratively, people on the other side of squabbles over civil litigation use the term to describe the plaintiff's bar. Lawyers who characteristically represent plaintiffs, usually individual plaintiffs rather than corporations or government entities who are suing someone. As I see things, one of the most interesting developments in the last century is that the plaintiff's bar, trial lawyers, if you will, has become professionally and intellectually far more sophisticated and financially far better capitalized so that they have become much more formidable adversaries. So formidable that the folks on the other side, 
large institutions that don't much like getting sued are pushing back. Yeah, so that, that's really fascinating. So what exactly makes up the plaintiff's bar and, and how are they different than the defense bar? You know, both obviously um, there's one tends to be the sewer and the other's the sued. But besides that, um, what, what really are the differences between the two parties? Well, the defense bar tends, though this is changing a bit, the defense bar tends to be uh, concentrated in uh, larger law firms uh, that make their living defending typically uh, business entities, corporations, if you will. Um, So the average size of a practice group, that is the number of lawyers in a a big defense side firm, can now run into a couple of thousand lawyers. Not always, but but sometimes. On the other hand, the plaintiff's bar uh, tends to be in smaller practice groups, sometimes solo, though that's much less common now than it was a few decades ago, but uh, smaller groups, say 10, maybe 20 lawyers, uh, that's, it's a kind of folk way. It's, there isn't anything written in the sky that says that it has to happen that way, but they tend to be a little smaller, um, a little uh, smaller, uh, a little more nimble, um, less less of an organization, less of a bureaucracy. Yeah, well, so that's really interesting. One of the things you mentioned um, earlier in, in response to one of my previous questions was that the plaintiff's bar is kind of is so is well capitalized and kind of is very threatening to the defense bar. You know, the way you describe it, it seems as if given the defense bar is often associated with corporations, you would expect it to be the other way around. So what's happened to make the plaintiff's bar so threatened? Once upon a time, it was the other way around. Uh, You can find uh, books written in the 1950s, 1960s, who describe the plaintiff's bar as being uh, solo lawyers operating out of storefronts with unwashed windows, without libraries, probably without a secretary, uh, while the defense bar tended to be much better capitalized. Uh, what happened is, is, is a bunch of things outside law, as well as some changes in law. But for example, uh, uh, starting in the 1930s and 40s, uh, financial markets changed so that people could get easily home mortgages. Today, somewhere between three-fifths and two-thirds of Americans live in a house that they own, or at least own together with the bank. Uh, Along with those mortgages comes liability insurance. Your mortgager will insist that you have not only fire insurance, but liability insurance. So suddenly, magically, we have hundreds of thousands of insurance policies out there so that when the delivery man or your guest slips on the bike in the driveway and sues, you automatically have a lawyer and you automatically have someone who will pay the bill if you lose. Same thing with automobiles. Those American households on average own about two and a fraction automobiles. Most of those automobiles are financed, and regardless of whether your state requires liability insurance, you can be darn sure that your finance company 
does. So you've got all of us driving around with built-in lawyer policies to hire a lawyer if I'm sued and a built-in pool of finances to pay if I'm careless and injure somebody. Well, when you get that on the defense side, what that does is to make plaintiff sidebar much more attractive. Now, if you win, you're going to get paid. Uh, that begins to attract more lawyers and to some extent better lawyers into the plaintiff's side. So without anybody thinking about restructuring the bar, these two developments completely outside law begin to transform what practice looks like. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, that kind of, I think that's, that, that begs an interesting question that you also answer in the book, which is, you know, okay, so you have these insurance companies now that develop, um, but the other side is there's lots of other people who are not necessarily involved in insurance companies that end up suing. So, but it takes a lot of money to bring a lawsuit to bear. So, what were some of the things that happened that actually um, made you know the plaintiffs' bar financially more tenable? Well, um, once you begin to get this this pool of assets represented, not only just insurers but also entities like General Motors or whoever who can pay a good-sized damage bill, um, it begins to pay the plaintiff's side to ramp up their business model. They can hire legal assistants. They can hire more lawyers in the shop. They can begin to specialize a little bit. So if I'm in a 15-person plaintiff side firm, maybe I do some workers' compensation uh, litigation. That typically doesn't have big payouts, but it's pretty regular, pretty persistent. So that pays the rent. That means we can have a couple of other people in my shop who do high stakes litigation, maybe a drug uh, a liability, maybe a toxic uh, waste dump uh, that is takes a long time to develop the case, higher risk, but potentially much higher payout. If you were going to put this in business terms, the plaintiff's bar can begin to afford to diversify. Yeah. And so I think that that's, that's really interesting. And it all kind of makes me wonder um, what happened to the trial then? If you have all of these lawyers that are increasing in number, you would expect there to be more trials. So what really happened to uh, the interaction between the plaintiff and the defense bar to reduce the number of trials? Yeah, well, this is this is the now we're going to dive inside the law. Up to now, I've been talking about stuff that's happening out there in the world that affects the legal profession, but isn't inside. There is something that happens inside. So, in the late 1930s, starting in the late 1930s and running through maybe 1960s, it's a very important inside baseball development. Uh, Civil litigation begins to develop what lawyers call discovery. It doesn't have anything to do with lost continents or anything like that, but it gives lawyers on both sides of a lawsuit very powerful tools to find out what happened. So we have an automobile crash, simple, common occurrence. Well, if I'm on the plaintiff side, representing an, the, an injured pedestrian or another driver, I can immediately um, ask for your cell phone records to 
find out if you were texting at the time of the accident. I can uh, get all your maintenance records. I can depose the boss with whom you maybe had a terrible fight, which meant that you were fuming at the time you were driving. I can begin to uncover all kinds of historical information about what happened that might have led to this lawsuit. Well, once both sides get hold of all that information, one of the things that can happen is that they reassess their cases. They say, hmm, this looked awfully strong to me until I discovered that the defendant was taking painkillers and had a fight with his boss. This doesn't look so good. Maybe settlement is a better idea. And on the on the uh, plaintiff's side, yeah, maybe he's exaggerating his injuries. Maybe he was going a little too fast at the time of the accident. So you get a whole bunch of this information that is discovered, uncovered would be a maybe a better term. And the parties can reassess their situation. Moreover, because each of these little discovery events costs some money, and it's going to cost even more money if we go to trial, we might both decide, you know, settlement looks like a way of avoiding risk. Because trials in the United States tend to have an all-or-nothing category. Either the plaintiff loses a defense verdict for zero dollars, in which case every dollar that the plaintiff's attorney and the plaintiff has put in is lost, or we get a plaintiff's verdict, which can be for a pretty significant amount of money if, if in fact, uh, our plaintiff is seriously injured, in which case the defense has lost all the money that it's invested, and on top of that has to pay damages. So, Given the information that once upon a time you could have found out about only at trial, now because of this technical change called discovery, you find out ahead of trial, and that begins to look make settlement perhaps look a lot more attractive and a way of avoiding the risks of trial. Yeah, that's great. And so um, reading your book, there was one thing that you you did not include in the book that this kind of made me wonder about. So I'm sorry if I'm throwing you a curveball, but so trials in the past were about fact finding. What are trials about now uh, for the few cases that actually go to trial? They're still about fact finding. So there's a bunch of procedural devices, which without I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of technical stuff essentially guarantee that only close cases will go to trial, at least if the lawyers know what they're doing and the parties are rational, which doesn't always happen. So only cases where the facts and the law are pretty close will go to trial. But that happens. Sometimes it happens that the facts are pretty close. Was I lying when I said the light was green or did, was the witness who said it was red but maybe doesn't see very well and maybe has a drug problem, was he telling the truth? Uh, so you will get cases that go to trial where the the facts are pretty close and you, the party can't in advance agree to settle and they roll the dice and they do go to trial. So not a lot but some. And there's also some evidence that individuals, that is you and me and the guy down the street, uh, who are not 
professional litigants. They don't, they aren't, as the jargon goes, repeat players. They don't litigate all the time. We may be a little less rational in deciding whether we want to settle. There's some empirical evidence that suggests that cases involving individuals on both sides go to trial at a higher rate than those that involve businesses or government entities that for whom litigation is a completely routine thing and who may approach it as much more of a coldly rational cost-benefit analysis. I'm much more likely to have a grudge and by gosh, I want to the jury to decide that I'm right and you're a snake or vice versa. And so maybe more of those cases go to trial. So that's a, that's, that's great. A great answer. So, uh, so you kind of answered this next question that I had reading your book with that, but so uh, trials obviously have this function in kind of maybe uh, win by a nose situations, mm -hmm. But other than that, do you think trials still have a useful role for our system? Like, why do we still, why is the ideal of a lawyer in some way still kind of the matlock in the courtroom in front of the jury? Well, it's a dramatic image that we can all kind of get behind. Uh, Crispus Attucks in the perhaps now discredited uh, story of uh, Kill a Mockingbird standing up alone for righteousness and justice in this little town and there it's a it goes all the way back into scriptural traditions of various uh, religious uh, uh, faiths that you know a trial is a chance to stand up and say your piece and be judged uh, and so I think that there's that. And the other thing that trials do sometimes is there's a, not just a fact-finding, but a kind of law-declaring uh, function. If this and this happens, uh, then the law requires the following outcome. And though that that's another piece of the story. It explains some trials, not, not all, not a lot, but some. Yeah. And I, so the last thing that you just mentioned is another thing that you talk about a lot in the book, or at least makes me think of this. So in theory, you might almost be able to have some kind of a precedential system with settlements, the outcomes of these disputes between people, but we don't see that happening. Why is that the case? Why does a settlement not result in some of these same things that we see a trial result? Well, a simple answer is because nobody knows, or let me, I'm going to be more careful it's not widely known how settlements come out. So if a, a trial or, in fact, any litigation ends with a judgment, the judge says you win, you lose, the jury says you win, you lose, that's a matter of public record. Uh, you can go down to the courthouse. If you know the name of the case, you can pull the docket. You can find out ex who won, who lost, how much they won, how much they lost. That doesn't happen with civil settlements. Now, sometimes it doesn't happen because there's a one of these now notorious confidentiality clauses that we're talking about in, in, in some high, high stakes and high salience uh, cases. But most civil settlements, there isn't a confidentiality clause. Someone bumps into me in the uh, on the freeway here in Los Angeles and causes some damage and I get the license plate and I cause, call his insurance company. The insurer looks at it, says, okay, it's, you know, $10,000 worth of body damage. We're not going to take the case to trial. 
rear end case where juries always find for the people who ran into you. So we're just going to settle it and we'll send you a check and you'll sign a release. Well, there is, except in the insurance company files, no record of that. You cannot find out how much the average settlement for uh, a broken leg, 15 days lost work in Mississippi is and how that differs from what the same broken leg and 15 days lost work in California or New York. There is no public repository for that information. So we're settling more and more of these cases, but we're settling them under this veil, not of secrecy, but the, there's an abs, there isn't a public system for recording these and making them available. Yeah. And so, and so that's interesting because it also, I think, highlights something we haven't talked about yet, but that you do mention in the book, which is arbitration. Because many of these private arbitration has become increasingly, um, you know, uh, visible in the news. The New York Times, for example, in the last several years has run several uh, stories about it. There have been some really big Supreme Court decisions in the last couple of years. Uh, just just a few weeks ago, there was Epic Systems Corp uh, v. Lewis, uh, AT&T Mobility v. Concepcion from California. So what is this arbitration thing and how is it similar and how is it different than than settling? Well, take the last point first, it's different from settlement because it isn't consensual. The, the parties are not saying, well, I'm, we're going to compromise and we'll pay you this much, but not anymore. Uh, the arbitration is what you might call litigation light. You the There's a arbitrator, sometimes several arbitrators. The parties both present factual evidence and arguments, and then the arbitrator decides. So it looks like litigation with two pretty salient differences. One is that unlike litigation, there is no public record. Most arbitration takes place behind closed doors. You can't find out what the outcome is. Uh, they don't publish the, any record of it. Uh, it leaves no trace. The second thing that's happened recently with arbitration and both uh, the case, the two cases you've both mentioned, Epic Systems and Concepcion against AT&T, those are both recent Supreme Court cases. They have their bite because they involved arbitration clauses that didn't just say we arbitrate, but you have to arbitrate as an individual. I'll, the, the case I'll describe was the AT&T uh, Concepcion case. That's an arbitration agreement on the shrink wrap of a cell phone agreement. And it said you have to take this case to, to, uh, to arbitration as an individual. Well, the amount at stake in that case was, let's say, $35. The problem from AT&T standpoint, uh, perhaps the opportunity from the standpoint of the Concepcion's and their lawyer, was that AT&T had put this arbitration agreement on 100,000 or 10,000 cell phones, and you multiply $35 times 10,000, and two things happen. First of all, the case becomes one that a skilled lawyer can afford to invest 
whatever it takes to prevail if the merits are on his side. Second, from AT&T's standpoint, it's facing a formidable opponent who, who can afford to sink a lot of money into this, but also a very, very big damage judgment at the end of the day. So what AT&T wanted to do and successfully did was to insist that those 10,000 people could not band together as a class and sue as a class. They insisted that each one of them take the case to arbitration individually. Well, that means that it's not worth any lawyer's time. A $35 case is a case no lawyer is going to take. Maybe a few individuals who are highly motivated and have spare time on their hands will spend time filling out the fee, the forms and appearing in this arbitration. But as a practical matter, it's not that there will be 30 or 10,000 individual cases, there will be zero cases. So a lot of the recent arbitration cases take have their bite because they essentially insisted on individual rather than group arbitration. That happened in the AT&T case. It also happened in the wages and hours case, which is the epic systems that you referred to. Same idea, different claim. One was for unpaid wages. The other was for this over, alleged overcharged on the cell phone. Yeah. And so that brings up an interesting uh, theme that runs through your book. And we've talked a little bit about it, this competition between the plaintiff's bar and the defense bar. And so, so far in this conversation, you've mentioned settlements as kind of a cooperative solution to this conflict where rational actors can kind of come up with a you know, the ideal box in the prisoner dilemma where uh, their losses are all, you know, minimized and the gains are maximized. And so I think it kind of seems like uh, this class action um, and the arbitration against class action is kind of another example. What, what I, could, I was wondering if you could unpack that and maybe talk a little bit more about what this competition has meant in terms of the changes in uh, civil litigation and what we see today. Well, if I'm understanding the, the thrust of your question, uh, what happened is that as the plaintiff's bar over, let's say, 50 years became more formidable, better intellectually and financially capitalized, uh, the guys on the other side of the case who were getting sued uh, began to push back. Um, and they did so in several ways. Sometimes they did so by sponsoring legislation that would make it harder to win a lawsuit or to limit damages. Uh, just to use an example, uh, doctors in California in the late 1970s succeeded in getting legislation, which is still in effect, that capped certain kind of damages in medical malpractice cases, so-called non-economic damages for pain and suffering, at $250,000. Well, that was a big piece of change in 1979, still a reasonable piece of change. But now medical malpractice cases are very expensive for the plaintiffs to litigate. you you got to think lots and lots of experts about standard medical practice, about the prognosis of the patient in his or her current condition, all kinds of elaborate investigation. Um, if you put that cap, as the California legislature did, on damages, uh, 
you make them less attractive to the part of the plaintiff's bar specializing in those cases. I know anecdotally of at least one highly successful uh, small firm that started looking for different cases when it became harder to finance med mal cases. Uh, another example, uh, groups like the United States Chamber of Commerce, which tends to represent large businesses, uh, conceived a multi-year litigation strategy, winning critical court decisions like the arbitration decisions we've just talked about uh, that had the same effect. And governments did some of the same things after being stung by a number of successful legal aid organizations suing to vindicate various housing and welfare rights state governments got the agency that funds legal aid to prohibit class actions against state and local governments. Now, the plaintiff's bar has fought back using both strategically placed campaign contributions and lobbying to advance their own interests, often with great success. Yeah, so that brings up two points that you talk a lot about in your book that I found very interesting. Um, the first, uh, the fact that there are still some of these small law firms that prosecute these uh, cases or, you know, um, uh, litigate these cases uh, that may not be all that well capitalized. And as you mentioned, it's, it's very expensive to, to do this. So where do they get their money? I know you mentioned financing is involved in that. So what is the role? There is, and there are really two or three answers to that. One is sort of self-financing. So if you're a diversified practice. You've got some people paying the regular bills as you pursue this lengthy and expensive litigation. Uh, the other thing is that uh, banks, so about 25, 30 years ago, began to realize that these law firms were small businesses. And like all small business, they often needed working capital. So a number of good-sized banks have whole divisions that specialize in lending to lawyers. They want to look at your balance sheet. They want to look at your, you know, how you're doing with your cases. What's the number of receivables you have? All the stuff you'd look at for another small business. And they'll write a line of credit for you for, you know, 500000 a million or whatnot. And that's just like any other kind of business, a manufacturing business or a sales business or anything. Um, there's also a pretty interesting niche market that now has come into being. And that's firms that will lend to uh, uh, typically a plaintiff side uh, lawyers uh, on the strength of a particular case. And they will drop big money, 15, 20 million dollars on the, on the case. And the deal will be that if you win, we get 25, 30% of whatever you win. If you lose, no problem. We don't try to collect it. And what they'll do is they'll send their people in and they will assess the value of your case. They'll, they'll look at the information you have. They'll look at what discovery has turned up. They'll think if you've got a strong case on the facts, strong case on the law. And if it looks good enough for them, they will finance this litigation for, as I've described it, often enormous amounts of money. And that provides another stream of capital, stream of financing for the plaintiff side firms. This is still a 
somewhat controversial kind of uh, uh, lending, but it it seems to be growing in size and uh, is is becoming increasingly important. Yeah, well, I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned about how controversial it can be because that is kind of uh, that was the second part of the the thought that I had that you raised, and you spent a lot of time in the book talking about the politics behind lawsuits. So I know, for example, a lot of people who might hear that. Um, that lawsuits are being financed. I know probably the most infamous example is the Gawker lawsuit uh, with uh, Elon Musk and Hulk Hogan, which I realize is a slightly different example. But, you know, they'll say that and they'll say, oh, this is why we've got to get rid of all these frivolous lawsuits. So politics, as you discussed before, is a huge component in um, in your book and and how we think about this. So I realize you could probably go on for a long time about it, but could you sum up kind of what is the role of politics in, in civil litigation and and maybe civil litigation in politics. Sure. Let me take, actually, split your question into two parts. First, a very brief comment about the financing, uh, and you mentioned the Hulk Hogan. Uh, that was quite atypical. That was a very wealthy individual with essentially a grudge match. That was about as untypical as third-party litigation finance as you can get. The third-party litigation finance guys are cold, steely-eyed, cold-blooded businessmen. They are absolutely uninterested in pursuing grudge matches. Uh, You would never find them financing that kind of lawsuit. It just wouldn't happen. They want litigants who are cold-bloodedly rational, who will settle or continue to litigate on the basis of an assessment of risks and benefits, not and, by the way, they aren't interested in financing frivolous lawsuits. They want to finance meritorious lawsuits because that's what they're going to be able to take to the bank. So that's a, that's a, just a side comment on, your, on the third-party litigation. Uh, on the other side, on the sort of political side, um, there is a very interesting back and forth going on, I think. Um, there's a public opinion side to all of this. Both groups conduct what you can call PR campaigns. And like all PR campaigns, both sides tend to paint just part of the whole picture. So the defense side holds up this week's ridiculous lawsuit. You can always find one example, suggesting that it's representative of the whole, uh, ignoring the fact that most civil lawsuits are in fact debt collection actions. The plaintiff side talks about holding the powerful accountable, ignoring the fact that the plaintiff's bar has emerged as a successful small business model, uh, which involves suing large business and government entities. So if the public catches on to this, this kind of partial characterization, uh, one can imagine shifts in opinion one way or the other, which over time might shift both legislation and judicial decisions. Uh, My crystal ball is quite cloudy. What I do know is that it would probably be a good thing for both experts, that is lawyers, legislators, judges, and the public generally, to understand more about how civil litigation actually works and how important it is to our economic and social life. I, I don't know if that gets at the question you were asking, or maybe maybe help me if I'm not getting to where you want. No, I, I think that's perfect. And, it, and in fact, it kind of leads me into a couple of other questions, which are, I think people have a conception about civil litigation, and you discuss this in the book, about, you know, the, I don't know, to take another uh, kind of pop culture Reference the like I don't know the ten million dollar thirty million dollar coffee spill at McDonald's 
And they look at that and they say, oh, this is just all wasteful, uh, waste, economic waste. It's not advancing anything. We need to stop this in order to, to bolster our economy. So really, how frequent are those large decisions and how much impact do they really have on the economy? You know, medical malpractice is another another case of this. Big verdicts of any kind, uh, you know, over a million, let's say, uh, are pretty rare. They're, they are they are, you could have a long and successful career as a lawyer on either the plaintiff's or defendant side and never be involved in a million-dollar verdict. Those make the newspaper for the same reason that when man bites dog, it makes the newspaper. Um, standard civil litigation, so the median piece of civil litigation, has stakes, oh, between ten and fifty thousand uh, dollars. <throat> so, the the picture we get from the newspaper, and you can't blame the newspaper for reporting the outlandish, uh, you know, uh, or or at least very large verdicts. Uh, nobody reports, "Hey, a dog bit a dog." Uh, so you do you get a quite distorted picture, and one of the small contributions I hope the book will make is that for us to realize that we ought to be making our judgments about the system based on the average, the median civil case, not at the ones that weigh way out at one end of the curve. Uh, yeah. So I, this is going to be a little bit of an abrupt change of gears, but speaking of kind of counterintuitive things, I, I thought another point that you raised in the book that was very interesting is this historical, I don't know exactly how to put a cross trajectory maybe between uh, civil and criminal litigation. You, you referenced several times an article you wrote, I think it's comparative law without leaving home, which I had so an interesting comparative law. I find it a very interesting idea. So what's happened with criminal versus civil litigation over time and, and what's kind of uh, unexpected maybe about that? Well, the first thing to say, I will contradict this in a second. I'll explain why. First thing to say is we're not really sure because one of the salient facts about civil litigation, but more about the whole litigation system, both criminal and civil, is that we have very bad historical information. Uh, we don't know for sure how much litigation of any sort there was in, let's say, 1850. Uh, there are complicated reasons. There's no conspiracy. We just don't have good records. So that's step one. Step two is that I think the impetus between civil and or the weight between civil and criminal has changed remarkably over the last, over the 20th century. So what happened is in the 18th century, uh, 19th century, uh, the 1800s, um, there was no systematic public prosecution of crimes. Let me say that again because it sounds so counterintuitive. Even murders in New York City in the 19th century were not regularly prosecuted unless the victim's family went out and hired a lawyer to prosecute the case. I mean, it's a stunning idea from our contemporary standpoint, but the record seems to bear that out. Well, because there wasn't a professional police corps, because there wasn't a core, a cadre of prosecutors, 
the cases that got brought were cases that were civil cases. They were people suing each other over property, over broken contracts or agreements, uh, a much lower proportion of criminal cases. What happens in the 20th century is first comes along the professional police. It happens in different states and cities at different times, but over the course of the late 19th century, in the wake of professional police comes along professional prosecutors. Uh, and in the wake of professional prosecutors, you get in the 1960s a landmark case called Gideon against Wainwright, in which the Supreme Court holds that a an indigent criminal defendant is entitled to a defense lawyer. Well, what that means is over the course of a century, criminal litigation has moved from private prosecution to essentially a state monopoly. You, I cannot now privately prosecute a criminal case. If the DA doesn't want to charge, there are no charges. I can scream at the DA. I can try to get him defeated in the next election, but I can't bring those charges myself. Well, when you get a professional prosecutor, you get a lot more criminal cases so that today our docket is essentially 50-50 civil criminal. As far as we can tell, if you go back into the 19th century, it's completely dominated by civil cases. It's These are private disputes, businesses, individuals, whatever, just a trickle of criminal cases. At the moment, we're having an off and on debate in this country about whether we have over-criminalized things, whether we are putting too many people in jail for too long for the wrong kinds of crimes, and there's maybe, maybe, maybe a fragile consensus between left and right, with the right talking about how much it costs to keep someone in jail for a year, $50,000, $60,000 the left talking about what a dreadful waste of human capital and potential this is. So if, if, if these two sides of the spectrum coalesce, and your guess is as good as mine whether that's likely to happen, you could imagine a significant decriminalization movement, both at the state and federal level. And if that happens, you can imagine the civil docket taking up more of the track of the, of the air band, the wavelength. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. This is maybe, uh, I'll throw this out there to see how you react to it. It's outside the scope of your book, but uh, you can kind of see, I think, in some similar things emerging with uh, certain aspects of the criminal law that parallel civil litigation. For example, um, oh, there's a lot more... Uh, uh, alternative dispute resolution, um, things that are being pursued that kind of have similar theoretical roots to arbitration, um, restitution. Well, they're more similar to settlement than to arbitration, but nothing so, very so, profound. Do you have any uh, thoughts about that? I, I know a little bit about the movement. It often involves, um, if you will, a little bit of privatization of the criminal process because Often it involves giving more voice to the victim. So heading heading back a little bit to the 19th century with private prosecution, often the 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 these mechanisms involve uh, 
the victim professing herself or himself satisfied with a particular kind of outcome, uh, which again goes back to a day when you could privately prosecute. So it begins to look a little bit more like uh, civil litigation. Yeah, great. I think uh, that's that's very interesting. So again, to kind of wrench and switch gears, uh, since we're winding to the end of the hour, one of the things I thought was very interesting from a theoretical standpoint about your book is uh, how you deal with the law and the economy. Often, you know, there is a school of legal thought, which arguably is the predominant school of legal thought in the American uh, legal academy called law and economics, which, you know, is, was pioneered by people like uh, Richard Posner, who, you know, kind of posit, uh, it's kind of a neo, very neoclassical rational actor model of economics, where economics and the law often take place in kind of an abstract, almost asocial environment. And one of the things that I thought was very interesting about your book is it seems to tell a slightly different story, one where society, and as an anthropologist, you know, I, I really enjoyed this about your book, society is is very much economics and law are very much part of society and react to social trends. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your thinking. As well, as again, I don't have any deep thoughts about uh, the law and economics uh, literature or the, or the movement. I, I guess I would agree if I, if I'm getting the drift of your question that the way in which economic developments have changed civil litigation, as I see it, have often started with things that don't seem to have anything to do with law. So let's take a example of uh, medical care. We've gotten over the last century an awful lot better at curing a lot more injuries or ailments. Uh, but we've done it in a way which notoriously in this country has often involves a lot more expense. Well, what does that have to do with civil litigation? Well, here's what it has to do. If medical bills from injuries that might create civil litigation are rising a lot faster than the rest of the cost of living, that's going to make it more worthwhile for insurers to settle or defend, and it's going to attract more plaintiff side lawyers because the price tag, the potential price tag of an injury is going to be higher. And if I'm working on a contingent fee, a higher number yields a my applying my percentage to that higher number yields a bigger payout to the lawyer. So nobody set out to increase the amount of civil litigation by inventing a ventilator or a new, fancy new imaging device. But the consequence of that is going to have ripple effects on the law. That is just one example. Yeah, great. I think that's a, that's a, that's a fantastic answer to that question. Uh, so uh, probably maybe our final question is, or at least our final theme is the future of civil litigation. You discuss it in probably the last chapter or so of your book. Um, and I know you mentioned that your crystal ball is in some respects cloudy, but what, what, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think our trial is going to come back or has discovery killed the trial uh, or anything else? I wish I had some great snappy prognosis. Uh, I don't. 
Uh, I the one thing I think I've learned is that the there are ripple effects that nobody sees when we do things with civil litigation. So in 1938, when in a big reform movement, uh, a bunch of lawyers created this discovery regime in which I can ask questions and run tests and <coughs> hire experts, nobody thought that it was going to reduce the percentage of trials. And the one thing I've become convinced of is that often when things happen out at one end of the pond or way upstream, they can have pretty unusual, unexpected consequences. So that's a fancy way of saying my crystal ball is very, very cloudy. That said, the things I see are pulling together some strands that we've talked about already. If there were a national consensus about uh, uh, reducing criminalization, uh, you might see an increase, not necessarily in trials, but you might see an increase in civil litigation. Uh, I think that some recent decisions of the Supreme Court in another area that we haven't talked about, which have made it a little bit harder to plead cases, may result in a lot more what you might call low-level espionage, people sneaking around trash bins and trying to uncover evidence or bribing employees about what's going on inside the factory because you need now need that information before you can file a lawsuit. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with arbitration. I, there are, I think that you could imagine a slight change in uh, political alignments that could happen this November, uh, which would make Congress uh, much more receptive to bills outlawing uh, arbitration clauses, for example, in labor and employment and consumer contracts. I don't know if that's going to happen. If that happens, you could see a little bit more civil litigation in those areas. Um, I, I'm in a long-winded way saying I don't have good predictions, and I'm frankly a little skeptical of people who think they've got really hard, good predictions in this area. Well, so I guess then uh, we could ask you as a, as a final question, if you are willing uh, to answer it, um, what are your thoughts about some of these evolutions? What are some of the costs and some of the benefits that we've gained from the discovery process and uh, maybe that we have gained or lost as a result of not having trials? What, what really, what are the effects of this? And maybe if you're willing, are they positive or negative? Well, I think that the discovery process has, on the whole, been a, a positive. It, there are undoubtedly abuses and cases where they, people run up the meter without yielding much important information. But it's hard for me to imagine that the world is worse because we now decide or settle lawsuits on the basis of what really happened rather than who can shout the loudest and pound his fist the hardest on the rostrum. So I, th I think on the whole, that's been a good thing. Um, I worry about two things. I worry that we may have 
the, the expanse of discovery and of civil litigation may have priced small lawsuits out of the market. They're just not rational for anybody to pursue. And I think that unremedied, um, legitimate grievances, if there are substantial numbers of legitimate grievances that remain unremedied, that's a bad thing for any society. I, uh, I also think that for all its flaws, uh, the civil litigation system uh, has up to now done a pretty good job. Uh, again, you have to think compared to what. Uh, you wouldn't probably want to uh, hold up the political process at this very moment, that is the legislative process as a model of enlightenment. Uh, that So compared to that, it looks a little better. I think it also looks better if you look around the world at other litigation systems. Uh, I'm not saying that ours is by any means the most just, but if you look at what individuals who have assets around the world want to do with those assets, very frequently it's to invest them in the United States. Now, there's lots of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is the confidence that they aren't going to lose them all as a result of the next election. And the reason for that essentially is the civil litigation system. The When we go around the world and tell developing nations what they should do, sometimes it's build roads, sometimes it's educate your people, but often along with that comes the statement, well, you have to establish the rule of law. Well, what the rule of law translated into simple, homely terms means is that if I've got a grievance, I can get somebody who isn't wildly prejudiced or in the other side's pocket to listen to my version of the facts, to listen to the other sides and decides who's right. That's worth a lot. And we should be very careful before we propose changes that would throw that away. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful point to, to end on and an interesting one. There's been uh, I know from personal experience uh, as a as a veteran who's deployed to some of these places, and there's been recent news stories that uh, some of the attractions of even some pretty horrible groups is simply that they're able to get the rule of law done uh, when other people aren't. So I think that underscores the importance of, of that last comment. So anyway, I would like to thank you, uh, Professor Yezel, for uh, joining us today. And it's been a wonderful chat. And if anybody is interested in, in this topic, uh, we've only scratched the surface of this wonderful little book. So thank you, and I'll see you next time. Well, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you.